First of all, there is so much glitter on my table up here. It's unreal and ridiculous. I'm going to walk off this stage and look like a glitter princess is what I'm going to look like. I came across a story this week that was very interesting. It was Number one, it was really, really funny, and I want to tell it to you. But I, number two, I think it actually really connects well with what we've been talking about over the last two, three weeks uh, in this series, One Small Step. Uh, I came across a story uh, about a mom who, it was in the Baltimore, Maryland area. And I don't know if you saw this story. I actually heard it on K-Love. Uh, this, this loving, sweet, wonderful mom. Like, don't we, don't we just love our moms? We just love our moms, amen, right? But don't our moms also do things sometimes you're just like, Mom. Guys, this is like, this is like the ultimate mom moment right here. She goes on to this college campus and in her sweetest, sincerest heart, she's carrying around her cell phone that has a picture of her son on it. Now what she is doing is she's going around to all the girls on the college campus and she's holding it up to them and showing a picture of her son and she said, would you, would you date my son? <laughs> and I think, oh my land, that guy, if he, you know, and probably what he was is he probably some like, you know, freshman on campus is trying to establish himself and be the big man on campus. And here's your mom walking around all of campus. And if that wasn't embarrassing enough, campus police got a hold of it. And they're like, if anybody sees this lady, AKA, she's a little off, all right? So stay away from her, beware. We don't want to charge her criminally. We just want her to stop, is what they said. But could you imagine that? And you think to yourself, what in the world is this wackadoo lady thinking, carrying around a cell phone, would you date my son? Over and over again, like two different like residence halls, would you date my son? Would you date my son? And I think to myself, that's really weird, number one. And honestly, I'm going to tell you, I, mean, I love my mama, but that's something my mom would have done. I kid you not. I like read that story, and the reason it was so funny to me is like it was like, that's my mom, that's my mom. Uh, it, it's really funny and it's really mortifying on one hand, but I think to myself, how much boldness did that woman have to have to do that? I mean, I don't know, but how, how many of you would step on a college campus for your son, your daughter, or whatever, and say, would you date my son? Would you date my? Not many of us. Less than a percent of us sitting in this room this morning. Less than percent of us who are watching this later would probably even have the boldness to do that. And I think to myself, that is the kind of boldness that I think all of us should have. Now, that doesn't mean that we should all be walking around college campuses and be like, would you date this person? Would you date that person? No. I think we have to have that very same boldness with the gospel. I think that's what Jesus calls us to is a very same kind of boldness. Is that very awkward? Yes. All right. Could it get us in trouble? Possibly but is it worth it at every turn? Absolutely. Now, I warned my Sunday school class this morning. I was talking with them uh, about a topic that kind of led into this one, and I said, guys, right now, this morning, I'm slightly applying pressure to your toes. But I'm going to tell everyone here this morning, I am not slightly applying pressure to your toes. I am stomping all over them. And better yet, I'm not stomping all over them. God's word and God's message he has for us this morning is stomping all over our toes. But I want you to introduce you to someone uh, that probably most of you will never know. Uh, any history buffs that we have in here? Any history buffs? Good. Anybody know who this guy is? This guy is George McClellan. And the reason that he is so important, the reason he is so noteworthy in Civil War lore is because he was... Um, 
the Civil War. He, he was a very important figure in the Civil War. He was the general-in-chief for the Union Army. And in fact, he had a nickname. His nickname, let's tell you everything you ever need to know about this guy. I could talk about, about him for a long time. His nickname was Young Napoleon. Now, if you know anything about Napoleon from history, Napoleon was not a good dude. Uh, Napoleon was a short guy. He had a short man's complex, all right? He thought he ruled everything, and he knew everything. This is how George McClellan was. He was a young Napoleon. He was a ruthless tactician. He was a brilliant strategist. He was a master of technique and method. In fact, I was reading a little bit about him. He was the youngest member to ever be accepted into the U.S. Military Academy at age 15. Can you imagine that, sending your 15-year-old off to the U.S. Military Academy? All right, he was an excellent recruiter. In fact, when he came on board into the Army, he increased the volunteers for Army by 300% in four months. Four months. I'm like, I need me a George McClellan for the church to go out and just start pulling people in. 300%. Troops loved him, and under them, they started to believe that they could really win the war. It was no surprise that President Lincoln put him in charge as general-in-chief. He had the experience. He had the talent. He had it all. He had an army that outnumbered the, uh, the enemy army two to one. He had everything. There was only one problem with George McClellan. Would you like to guess what that problem was? It's a pretty important problem, by the way. Anybody? The guy would not fight. Like you're thinking to yourself, that's really stupid and weird, right? A guy who is a general in chief of the army and he has some aversion, he has some fear to fighting in a war. Like I said, he had everything. He had it all lined up. He had the tactics out there, the battle plan out there. He lined everything up. It was going to work. And he just refused to fight for some reason. Despite all his tactical advantages, his know-how, everything that he had, he eventually was removed as general-in-chief because he just couldn't fight. Ulysses S. Grant was put in charge, and the rest, as they say, is history. And in much the same way, I really I'm afraid and I feel that way too many Christians, too many disciples are great at theorizing. We're great at strategizing. We come up with all of these, if you will, battle plans. This is, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to march into this world, and it's going to happen this way. But we're really horrible at actualizing the plan. We're really horrible at putting things into practice. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but one of the things that I hear most often in the church, and I've experienced in the church, and I actually just heard it not too long ago, is we go into our meetings, into our little huddles, whatever it is, a leadership meeting, a missions meeting, a finance meeting, and we talk about all kinds of stuff, and we leave the meeting, and everybody looks at each other, and they go, what in the world did we decide to do? Nothing. We decided to do nothing, guys, but we just spent an hour, hour and a half, two hours of our time just talking about stuff, right? That sounds good. That looks good. But we're really horrible at putting things into practice. We have all of the tools at our disposal, but we're not going to do the one thing that we're called to do, to fight, to actually move, to actually go into action and do something that God has called us to do. And let me say from the get-go this morning, because some of you are going to feel this throughout the sermon, you may already feel it now, I don't want this sermon to come across as a guilt trip. I really do not. 
I, but if that's the way that you feel at the end of the sermon, that's not me trying to put it on you. That's just called Holy Spirit, all right? Impressing on you. My intention with what I am about to say for the next several minutes is not to make you feel horrible about yourself, not to make you feel like a complete failure. It's quite the opposite, actually, is what I want at the end of all things today. I do hope that you're challenged. I do hope that you're convicted by what the Word speaks to you this morning. But with that, I hope that you are motivated. And I hope that you're inspired to see God's call for His disciples in a fresh, bold, and a new way. My prayer is that you will see the words that we are about to read and that you will hear. I I pray that you will hear and see them with open hearts and eyes and minds. With that being said this morning, I want to ask for God's grace for us to see with new eyes and for us to receive his instruction with new hearts. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I pray that as we begin this morning, as we open up your word, And we look at it, Lord, we do not see it as one man speaking, Lord, but we see it as your words speaking through one man. Spoken to all of us, I pray that you would open our minds. For some of us, we have heard this section of Scripture so many times, but Lord, I pray that you would just put it in someone, put it in all of us today, Lord, that you would just be able to slip it in there in a new way for us to hear to experience, and most importantly of all, to apply in our lives. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our path that we've been walking for the last few weeks in relation to evangelism, that word that we've been talking about over and over again, has brought us to the pinnacle of Christ's mission, not only for His church, but for each individual person in here this morning. I'm just going to say this right off the bat, and I'm going to say it many times probably, what I am about to say is not just for the church, but if you would consider yourself a follower of Christ and you have been baptized into Christ and you are a disciple of Christ, this message I have for you is not just for the person next to you, it's not just for this whole big group as one, it's for you. You, 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 all across this room this morning. The end of Matthew's Gospel account we, we get some very important words from Jesus. They are, by all accounts, if we would read Scripture and we could put it chronologically, they are His final words, His final charge that He gives to His disciples. And as with all last words, as we understand them, they have proved to be lasting words. We have remembered these words for over 2,000 years, and we still speak them today. Matthew 28 is where we're going to be for this morning. At the very end, the last few verses of Matthew is what we're going to read. Verses 16 through 20, starting at 16, it says this. It says, The eleven disciples left for Galilee, as Jesus had instructed them, and they were going to the mountain where he had told them to go. When they saw him, and this is a very important line right here, when they saw Jesus on this mountain, they worshipped him. So stop right there. I'm going to talk about this a whole lot, but I do want to say that the, the, the basis for this entire section of Scripture is cloaked in worship. Everything that Jesus says from here on out is only motivated by worship. We only do what he says in the rest of the verses here in Matthew 28 because we really, truly value him and see him as worthy and want to worship him. It says they saw him, they worshiped, but some of them doubted, which is a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But that's a very interesting phrase as well. They're worshiping and they're doubting all at the same time. I don't think there, is there anybody in here who has ever worshipped God before, but also doubted at the very same time? Yes, we do it a lot, maybe all the time. And then Jesus came and he told his disciples, 
I have been given all. What's that word there? All. All authority, not just in heaven, but I've given, been given all authority on earth as well. Therefore, because of that, everything resting on Jesus' authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you and be sure, rock solid sure in this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One commentator has referred to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission in particular as the climax, as the focal point not only of Matthew's gospel, but of the entire New Testament. Guys, those are big words. They are saying this right here, these verses we have just read, is the point of not only just Matthew's gospel, it surely is, but all of the New Testament. Somebody else ups the ante on it and says that it is no exaggeration that in the broadest sense, the Great Commission is the focal point of all Scripture. Genesis to Revelation. Do you want to know what Scripture points to? They are saying this right here, these verses we've just read in Matthew 28. And whether you subscribe to that and you, or you go, I don't really know. I don't know if that is the focal point. It goes without saying, guys, that, and it's a reminder of the extreme significance of Jesus' final words here in the book of Matthew. The final words that Jesus gives us in his physical ministry here on earth. This is it. This is it. He says this to his disciples, and then Acts would tell us that he would be ascended into heaven. This is it. And yet what we do so often with these words is we say, yeah, been there, done that, heard that one before. And we just completely ignore it. We completely ignore these words. And we may say that we really believe in these words and that we really love these words and that we really stand behind these words. But here's the thing, guys. We don't often do these words here. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, is it incredibly difficult to do what Jesus says here? Is it overwhelming? Absolutely it is. But is it rocket science? No. There is no amount of rocket science to what Jesus says here in Matthew 28. One of the church's most difficult problems is not growth or the lack of it. Jesus doesn't look, God, Jesus doesn't look down from heaven and he says, oh man, that New Heights Christian Church, oof, I just like, it, I mean, like really, do you see, do you see those pews right there, people? That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. They're, they're empty. Those pews are empty. I, I don't think that Jesus looks down from heaven and says that. The problem with the church is not growth. The church is not, the problem with the church is not the lack of growth in the church. The church is deepest challenge lies in convincing its people that who they are and what they do outside of church on a Sunday morning is the real work of the church. Amen? Anybody want to believe that? Anybody want to get behind that? What we do here on a Sunday morning is increasingly important in our world that we live in today, but I am telling you it's exponentially greater that we understand that what we do out there in our jobs, and in our daily lives, and in raising our kids, and all these things is exponentially more important than right here. 
because you are going to reach a far wider audience out there than you ever will in here. We just noticed that when we had to cancel church for two weeks and we did our first live stream on the second Sunday of those two weeks, I, I kind of stepped back from it and I thought to myself, I said, you know what, that was, that's a really neat thing that we have, to have that access to technology. And it doesn't matter, guys, if every single spot in this pew was filled up with people, I would reach far more people through a live stream that would go out there than I would if this whole place was packed to the gills. That's just the nature of it. I don't think that God ever primarily intended or solely intended that what we do in here, we just go away and say, well, that was it. I'm good now. Got another week to go. No. He wants us to understand that what we do in here has to impact what we do out there. Here is what I really wonder, and really, I'm going to just tell you this, honestly, I own this one because I'm a leader in the church, but I wonder this. I wonder is if as the church we have dropped the expectation that the, what I'm going to call, and I don't mean to be offensive by this, the everyday Christian, you guys that are out there every single day, walking and talking and bumping up against people, I wonder if we have dropped the expectation that the everyday Christian will actually reap any kind of fruit in their lifetime. that every single one of you here could get to the end of your life and at least say this, I have made one disciple for Jesus Christ. I wonder if we have, we've read Matthew 28 so much that we've become so tired of it and it's become so passe to us that we say, it's a fairy tale, man. It's a fairy tale. No, no ordinary person is going to bear fruit is going to make a disciple. Have we deferred so much of the life and the work of the church to what I call, not everyday Christians, but we call them professional Christians, right? I guess that's what I am, right? I'm a professional Christian. If I'm a pro at it, I'm not doing all that great sometimes. If we left all of that in the life of the church to the professional Christians, that there's no real impulse, there's no really desire, there's no passion to do what Christ has called each of us to do. Not just me. God didn't just magically one day say, Ryan, I'm calling you into ministry because I want you to do Matthew 28. And by the way, if you can get like maybe a few more people to do it, that'd be wonderful as well. No. He calls all of us into what he says here in Matthew chapter 28. And the thing that Christ has called every believer to do, every disciple to do, I want to take a look at these verses again and really begin to break them down so that we get a true understanding of what we're being called and asked to do as God's people. Because what we would do most of the time is we would look at this and be like, oh, 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 Jesus says, Jesus says to go. All right, so I'm going to go. I'm just going to go. Wherever. All right, over there, over there, overseas is where I'll go. It's not really what he's asking us to do. Oh, so what he's telling me is I just, like, I just need to dunk a bunch of people, all right, and then, and then we're good. I've got this, all right? That's part of it, but that's not all of it. That's not the only thing of it. Oh, okay, so I feel like I'm a really good teacher, so he's calling us to teach people, all right? So I'll go do that. I'll go teach people, and I'll be fulfilling what God has called us to do here. If we do any or all of those things, they're wonderful things, and they are necessary things, but they are not the main thing that Jesus tells us to do here in Matthew 28. 
There are two large things, really, that form the basis and the foundation for the entire command and mandate that he gives us. Evangelism, what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Go into all the world, baptize people. And then he says to teach them, which is what we would call in the church discipleship. To grow people deeper. Mature people so that they can bear fruit. And for too long, I think what has happened in the church is that we have pitted these two integral parts of God's mission against one another. We hold them like as, as mortal enemies, evangelism and discipleship. Which one's more important? Which one do we do more than another? It's almost like we look at them and we, we, we treat them, like I said, like mortal enemies, like Batman versus Joker. Or like Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. Like they're, they're just light and darkness. One of them's got to be bad, one of them's got to be good. One of them's got to be more important, one of them's got to be less important. But my question to that is, is that really the right way to look at these two integral parts of what it means to be a disciple? Is it it possible there really is no competition between evangelism and discipleship? But they're not enemies, but they're complementary. Like brothers instead of mortal enemies. It's no mistake, as one author puts it, they keep turning up at each other's parties and special events. If you look throughout Scripture, and especially in the Gospels, especially in the New Testament, everywhere that you would see God or, or Jesus or one of the apostles calling people to go and to spread the good news, it's always followed by discipleship and vice versa. Wherever you see somebody growing deeper in the Lord, then they're saying, all right, now I'm sending you out to go into this world and evangelize. Here's what happens when you have one without the other. Evangelism without discipleship tends to be short-lived. When we, when we have just evangelism and no depth to it, we focus on the right packaging and the right presentation, the right, and we start, we start counting numbers because we think that's really impressive and we try to impress people with our numbers. You may not know this, but when you show up, this is like bar none what happens at every conference that you go to as a minister. Like, tell me about your church. Okay, here's my church. And the next question they will ask is this. How many do you have at your church? It's like the worst question ever. God, do do we want things to grow? Yes, we want things to grow because growth means health. But do we focus solely on that? I just want more people. I want more people to fill these pews. If we have more people but they're no deeper than, than what they are when they first come, it doesn't matter, guys. It's not accomplishing mission. What happens with evangelism and only evangelism is that conversion simply becomes a finish line. Counting numbers is how we pat ourselves on the back and we say that we are successful because we have a lot of people. Once we've brought somebody into the kingdom, all is well and all duties are optional from there on out. This is what I would call the pragmatic syndrome. We just do what works so that we can get the results. Doesn't matter, all right? All I want to do, all right, tell you about Jesus, ba-boom, dunk you. That's fine. Sit in that pew now and I'm going to go on to something else. But we never do. I've heard it likened to this, and it's a great illustration. What happens if you have a child who's a baby, and you never decide that you're going to change diapers, you're never going to feed that child? You're going to have a whole lot of hungry, really nasty and smelly babies walking around. Same thing happens in the church, guys. When we come into Christ, all we are is just little babes. People who just need to have the little... It called, they call it milk in Scripture. We just need to have a little bit of milk, and then we can move on to the meat. If we never, ever deepen people in the church, but all we do is just bring them in, dunk them, sit them in pew, have fun, we're on to something else, we are going to have a lot of problems in the church. A lot of smelly problems in the church. On the other hand, if you have discipleship with no evangelism, what it does is creates the very unhealthy condition of unfruitfulness 
in the followers of Christ. Simply put, disciples who do not evangelize, who do not go out into the world with the message of Christ are not fulfilled and they are not productive in their lives in the way that God intended them to be. And worse yet, what happens with somebody who is just, oh, like, I'm a disciple and I'm deep, all right, is what I often hear with people. I'm just, I just want to be deep, man. They get really petty. They get really self-righteous. This is what I would like to call, this is what Jesus railed against constantly in Scripture, is what I would call the Pharisee syndrome. They look all well and good, but on the inside they are dead and empty. They have all the information without transformation. All the form with none of the substance. And what I think about when I think about evangelism and discipleship is, is, is number one, they go together. They're one and the same. They have to go together. And could it be that evangelism is the front end of what God calls us to do, what Christ calls us to do, and discipleship, maturing believers, is the back end of a much larger task? Guys, when one or the other, evangelism or discipleship, is elevated over the other or they're lacking completely, Christians suffer. Churches suffer. More importantly, the world suffers. And what Jesus has commanded us to do here in Matthew 28 suffers. And if the call Christ gives to his disciples, and again, gives to us, every single one of us in the room who would call ourselves a disciple, if he gives that to us, and if it's suffering or if it's sagging, guys, we are failing. We're failing. If at any point we are not doing what he's called us to do here in Matthew 28, like I said, the world is worse for it. Guys, Matthew 28 has the express and important expectation that we reproduce over and over again. Not that we just do it one time and be like, whew, glad I got that out of the way. This isn't like a trip to the doctor's office. That we reproduce ourselves over and over again in people, so that they could reproduce themselves over and over into others. That new disciples would become mature disciples who would in turn embrace God's mission and make new disciples themselves. Guys, please do not miss that. That is the point of this morning's text. In fact, you'll notice that when we come to the end of all things, you'll be like, well, Ryan didn't have some of his wonderful truth points up there this morning. Guys, there is one point this morning. One and only one. And if you miss it, I am so, so sorry. I hope you don't because I'm going to say it about a bajillion times in the rest of the sermon this morning. One point, one mission for every person who would call themselves a disciple. As much as we've talked about evangelism over the last few weeks, as much as we talk about discipleship and what Jesus does with that, there is a greater plan. There is a greater call. And do you see what that is in Matthew 28? What does Jesus say? Therefore, Go and what? Two words. Say it louder than that, please. Make disciples. Here we go, guys. Ready? If you don't want your stove stepped on, curl them up underneath it. You cannot call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ if you have not, in turn, made a disciple. That's what Matthew 28 says. If you want to talk with me about it at the service, you'll be like, I really disagree with that, Ryan. Then we'll have a fun time. Because I didn't say it. Jesus said it right here. I, again, I don't say that to make you feel like, oh, darn, I'm just less, I'm, I'm a bad Christian. I'm a, no. I'm saying that because we need to realize this as the church, as God's people, 
that this is the most important thing that we could ever do with our lives. Make disciples. There is a man who back in the 60s wrote a book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. His name is Robert Coleman. And he says this. I have a quote up here uh, that I'm going to put up. He says, the Great Commission is not merely to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel, nor to baptize a lot of converts into the name of the triune God, nor to teach them the precepts or the ideas or the wonderful things of Jesus Christ, but it is this, to what? Make disciples. You're going to get tired of that phrase, honestly, by the end of the sermon, because I'm going to say it a lot. To build men like themselves who were so constrained, who believed so deeply by the commission of Christ that they not only followed Jesus Christ themselves, but they led others to follow him too. The criteria upon which any church should measure its success, this is so important, please listen, is not how many new names are added to the role, nor how much the budget is increased, but rather how many Christians are actively winning souls and training them to win the multitudes. Boom. That's it, guys. There is no other way that we as a church could say, well, we're successful because we do this, because we've got an awesome youth program, because we have a wonderful guy who gets up on Sunday morning and preaches the word to us, because we have great... None of that matters. It's just window dressing to the most important thing that we're called to. If we do all of those things and it looks really wonderful and lovely and rosy, but we are not, and I am not, and church leadership is not, and we are not together causing and challenging each other to go out and to make other disciples, we have failed. We are a failure as a church, as a body of believers. The mission is what? To do what? here we go I'm going to ask it a lot of times so you're going to have to be a little bit more forceful when I say the mission as the church as individual believers is to do what boom guys that's why for the last weeks months into last year we have talked about this thing called four chair discipling we don't get up here to say this is another thing that you could do to you know take up four hours of your Saturday morning no because what we are going to do this upcoming Saturday morning is what I feel like the the greatest thing that we could give our time to. Four hours, four measly hours to come and do something and learn some things that would possibly motivate you and inspire you to go out and to change the world and do what Jesus Christ has called us to do. I don't think that's too much to ask. That's why we've been hammering this for weeks. Guys, we can come to worship services Sunday after Sunday. We can do and say a million things that look Christian, but all the while we can be neglecting our most important mission, making disciples. And unfortunately, the church is filled with people. I'm not just talking about New Heights. I'm talking about the church abroad. The church is filled with people who have been Christians for five years and 15 years, or even possibly 50 years, who have never led someone to be a reproducing disciple or engaged in any of the disciple-making process. Is that incredibly sad? That people would sit in church for that many years and not do the one thing that Jesus has commanded us to do. Ouch. Am I stepping on anybody's toes? Good. Because I'm stepping on my own toes too. Guys, we simply need to become better at this one thing.
Like, I, I would say it this way. We're in February right now. If I could, I, I, I cannot imagine or fathom any sermon that I would, now this is not, I know how you guys are going to take this. Well, we don't need to come back to any other sermon. I cannot imagine another sermon I would preach the rest of 2019 that would be as important as this one right here. That's it. Now, we need everything else to kind of come around it to help us understand it better, but this is it. Let me have someone else step on your toes for just a bit. A guy by the name of Dawson Trotman has this to say about this whole idea of the Great Commission. I'm going to have to pull it up here real quick because I don't think I'll put it on the screen. Give me just a moment. I will be right with you. Maybe. Technology, gotta love it. I don't think I have it up there, Dan, so don't look for it. He says this. He says, the curse of today is that we are too busy. How many times have you heard that from? I'm just, I'm too busy. He goes, I'm not talking about being busy earning money to buy food. I am talking about being busy doing Christian things. We have spiritual activity with little productivity. And he continues by saying this, the gospel spread to the known world during the first century without radio, without television, without the printing press, without social media, because the writings of the apostles produced men who were reproducing. But today we have a lot of pew sitters. People think that if they're faithful in church attendance, put good-sized gifts in the offering plate, get people to come, they have done their part. If I were a minister of a church and had deacons and elders to pass the plate and choir members to sing, I would say, thank God for your help. We need you. Praise the Lord for these extra things you do. But I would keep pressing home the big job. Be fruitful and multiply. All these other things are incidental to the supreme task of winning a man or woman to Jesus Christ and then helping him or her to go on. Guys, this is not a comfortable call. It is a costly command that will demand every single bit of us, even parts of us that we don't think that we possess. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says this to his disciples when he first calls them. He says, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And it says they left their nets at once and they followed him. Hold that idea. I will make you fishers of people. And then he comes to Matthew 28 at the very end of the gospel here. And he says what? I am with you. I will do these things to the end of the age. Guys, from the very beginning, Jesus has made it clear that everyone who follows after him is expected to fish. I don't care if you're a fisherman or not, if you like fish or not, I don't. All right? I love to fish, only if somebody puts the worm or the bait on there and they take the fish off for me afterwards. I don't care if you don't like it, and it's too slimy, slippery, gross, whatever it is. Jesus has called every single one of us in here to fish. Matthew 28 is a fitting conclusion to the way Jesus calls his disciples initially. Matthew 4, 19, every follower is a fisher, is essentially what he says. Matthew 28, every disciple is a disciple maker. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' ministry, to be a disciple is to make disciples. To be a disciple maker. Guys, there is one imperative in Matthew 28 here. Make disciples. 
That's what he says. There are three supporting pieces. That's all that go, baptize, and teach are. They are supporting pieces to the main idea. And sometimes I think what we do is we, we read the Great Commission and we think to ourselves, well, you know what, though, Ryan? Jesus was really just talking directly to the apostles. I mean, to the elite. I mean, to the people who could really do this. That's something that only the bigwigs do. Guys, that's not the case. When the disciples were charged with teaching, again, read it and look at it right there. He says, teach them to obey all things. Don't you think that necessarily includes the command to be a disciple maker? Jesus' command was not, teach them what I have commanded you, except for that one part about making disciples. Only really give that to the important people, to the professional Christians. Guys, in Scripture, it is never or rarely ever the heavy hitters who get anywhere first to bring the gospel. Someone else has already been there. Somebody else has already gone before them. Guys, that's no accident. Those who are not called to full-time ministry are actually in a far more strategic place to spread the gospel far and wide. Every single one of you are uniquely put in places. Here, I've said it before. Guess what? You know what my job is? My job is a lot of things, but a lot of time is just like day-to-day stuff. It's being here and making sure that things are fine and great and wonderful and well, and to train you to go out and to make disciples. I'm at a disadvantage. I spend most of my time here. I try to push myself out there and go do things out there, but a majority of my time is here. Do you realize it's complete opposite for you? You spend minority of your time here, and you spend the majority of your time out there in the world. Have you ever seriously considered or do you consider it enough that God has placed you where he has, given you the skills and the abilities and the talents and the passions, not just because you can collect a paycheck from that or not because you can get personal enjoyment out of that, which is not a bad thing in and of itself, but he's put you in those places and he's given you a platform for gospel conversation and transformation. Another quote from a man named Mark Deaver, he says this about the church and about the Great Commission. A Great Commission church works to train its members in evangelism because it knows they will collectively see more non-Christians throughout the week than will ever be able to fit in the church building. It's just what I said a little bit ago. So success in evangelism, success as a church is not simply bringing your non-Christian friends to church, although you should do that, so that they can hear the gospel. Success is sharing the gospel with your non-Christian neighbors and friends. Again, it's just another way to say what happens in here. Yes, important, but oh, so much more important out there. We don't just bring people in here so that somebody else can do the job. God is calling you to do the job out there with people that you see every single day. Many would be tempted to think and play it out in the life that the minister is the person who we pay. We support you to do minister. We support you, minister, to do heavy lifting. It is the exact opposite. I support you. I support all of you. That's my job, to support. In a very certain sense, and in a very real sense, I have disqualified myself from certain types of ministry. I should actually be moving to a support role if I believe Scripture to be what it says it to be. Uh, Ephesians 4.11 says that God has given the church pastors and, and teachers and prophets and evangelists so that they can build up the church and equip the church to do the ministry of the church. 
Jesus' clear intention is to have his disciples, to have his people teach all things to all people so that everyone becomes a maker of disciples. John 15, 8. Do I have John 15, 8 on there, Dan? John 15, 8 says this. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. brings great glory. Do you know what glorifies God more than anything else? It's not a trick question. I just showed you. What is it? To make disciples to, or what John would call it in 15, to bear much fruit. And just so we don't go away here this morning feeling awful about ourselves, let me make this observation about unfruitfulness or about fruitfulness and unfruitfulness. Guys, unfruitfulness, because some of you are saying here and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, and if you really be honest about it, you'd be like, gee, she's right. I have not made one single disciple in my lifetime. Guys, that, that in and of itself is not the problem. Unfruitfulness is not the problem. I mean, think about Peter when he's on the water, remember? And he comes, he's fished all night, and he's not getting anything. And Jesus says, why don't you just simply put your nets over on the other side of the boat? And then he says he's got so much, he doesn't even know what to do with it. So unfruitfulness is a part of Scripture. It's a part of the disciples' life. Unfruitfulness is not the problem. The problem is not being bothered by unfruitfulness. If you don't go home, if you don't get to the end of every week and you think to yourself, what in the world have I done? What in the world have I done to make a disciple? I, I've done nothing. And if you're not bothered by that, then that is the problem that we're talking about. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, has this to say about unfruitfulness. He says, it's true that a fisherman may not catch fish, but no true fisherman is okay with that. And then he says this line that is very haunting. If I weren't bringing souls to Jesus, I'd cry out night after night after night. I hope that would be true of you as well. Guys, we have to get serious about doing everything we can to live our lives so that we bear much fruit. And we cannot do out there and around the world what we can't do right here. Some people would say, well, well I think what I really need to do is I just need to go all the way across the globe so that I can make disciples. Here's what I would ask you in that. Have you ever made a disciple right here in your own community? Have you ever made a disciple in your own family? If you haven't, there's no sense in you traveling thousands of miles to go over there or over there where you think God might be right here. Do it right here. Guys, we serve the world best where we share the word the most. It's not a general command to make disciples among as many people as possible, but a very specific command to make disciples among every people group in the world. And if statistics hold true, there are 2 billion people. It's probably higher than that. I'm just going to start there. 2 billion people in this world who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. Guys, there are some people right where you are who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. How defeating and how sad is that? It's incredibly sad. It breaks my heart to know there are people who have not even heard the gospel to respond to it. Guys, we have been changed as people of God to bring about change through the power of the gospel. I want you to notice a couple of things about this command that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 28. There are two foundational pieces 
that we haven't really focused on much yet. We've talked about going and baptizing and teaching. We've talked about making disciples. I really hope you've heard that this morning. But it's all based on two things that he says before he gets to all that and after he gets to that. And I want to sum it up in two words. It's all about authority and it's all about presence. I want to talk about authority for just a minute, guys. It's important to note that as Jesus gathers his disciples on this mountain to give final instructions, he doesn't start with a command. He doesn't say, hey guys, guess what? I'm commanding you. you you're going to do this. Is what He doesn't say that. Do you notice how he starts out this whole thing to the guys? He starts it out with a claim. Verse 18. I have been given all what? Authority. I've been given all of the authority. So often what we do is we jump to the meat of these verses when we explore and when we interpret them, but we miss a major part if we cut out this claim of Jesus here. It's actually the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 when it talks about that, that, the, that the Son will be given all authority. Guys, everything that follows in closing out Matthew's account here hangs on his authoritative claim. Really, everything hangs on this truth. Jesus is Lord of all. Everything. Do you believe that? Not just like Jesus is given reign over a little bit or He's really good with things in heaven. Jesus is Lord over all. He died, He rose, He's been exalted, and He is right now, as I'm speaking and saying these words, Lord of all. Sitting in heaven, and He's reigning from there. One day He will come, and He will make all things right, and He will rule and reign completely. Guys, none of that changes. None of that is diminished, regardless of what we think or what anyone thinks about Jesus. He is Lord over everything. Jesus' worth is what fuels our mission. We go because Jesus is worthy of the worship of every single person on this planet. His mission will succeed because His authority guarantees it. Matthew 24, 14, He says this very interestingly in Matthew 24, 14. And the good news about the kingdom, notice this, there's three times He does this, the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Jesus is so sure about this because he has authority to say these things. We believe in the authority. We obey the command here in Matthew 28 because we have the assurance and we have the promise of the second thing that I want to talk about for just a minute. Not only do we have Jesus' authority, we have Jesus' presence. What does he say here at the very end of Matthew's Gospel? I am with you. Again, this is so interesting how the Bible is written and how Matthew documents it. You know what the very, one of the very first things it said about Jesus in Matthew chapter 123? You'll be given a child and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then you come to the very end of it and he, just to remind you again, guys, I've said at the very beginning, I say that I am with you. I want to kind of cut through everything this morning. I want to give you a, a parting thought. I'm not going to give you some wonderful three-point sermon here. The, the point has been very clearly made, I think, this morning. I want to give you one thought. How in the world do we become effective and fruitful disciple-makers? And I can only say it in this way. It may not sound very theological when it comes out of my mouth, but it is so true. Guys, here you go. Ready? Own it. Own it. It's yours. 
Recognize and own what God has called you to do. Not me, not your neighbor, not the person sitting next to you, but you. I mean, again, can we be honest? Does thinking about what we have talked about this morning, what we've read Matthew 28, doesn't it just freak you out? Doesn't it just overwhelm you that you're expected to make disciples? It should, guys, but that is okay. It's totally okay to be freaked out. Because when you start to own the mission, you can start to ask God for help. You see, we, we so often have these excuses when it comes to doing the one thing that Jesus has called us to do. Some barriers that we put up that disallow us from being effective and being fruitful. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm not, that's good, Ryan, but I'm not capable of that. You're right, you're not. God is. I will be with you. I will make you a fisher of people, is what Jesus says. Guys, what a promise that is. What confidence does that inspire in you when I tell you that God will go with you, that he will speak in you? He does that through his spirit today. It has absolutely nothing to do with your ability and has everything to do with your availability. That's all it is. I'm not capable. Here, here's another one. I do not have time. I, I just want to slap myself in the mouth whenever I say that. I want to slap other people in the mouth when I hear them say that. I don't have time Again, to do the most important thing Jesus has called me to do. Guys, I understand I'm busy. You're busy. We're all so busy. But no one was busier than Jesus Christ himself when he was on this earth ministering. But in his busyness, this is so interesting to me, in Jesus' business, busyness, he did everything with people, around people, in the midst of people. There's a guy by the name of Tim Chester that says it this way, evangelism is simply doing normal, busy, everyday life with gospel intentionality. I would just term it another way. It's doing life with people. You know, I'm afraid that too many of us are busy, 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 but we're getting nothing done. How many of you go through an entire week and you look back at your week and you're like, I didn't get a single thing done on my to-do list. It's a bad feeling, isn't it, right? Just take a day. You get to the end of a day and you're like, I didn't do anything fruitful or productive. It feels pretty nasty. You're like, why did I even wake up this morning if I was going to do that and come to the end of it and I was going to just be so fatigued at the end of the day, but I did nothing. Because I'm afraid that many of us are going to step to the edge of eternity and we're going to collapse from our busyness and then we're going to realize that we never did the one thing that Jesus said that we must do. Because instead of using your vocation, instead of using your sphere of influence and your built-in network that God has given to you, uniquely given to you, and just fritter it away with busyness and boredom and fatigue, how about we leverage it as a platform for the sake of the gospel and eternity to do the one thing that we have been called to do? Guys, please help me out one more time. To do what? That was pretty good. I, wanna, I, wanna, I came across this idea this week and I thought it was really interesting and neat. may not be the thing for you, but this makes it to me a little bit more concrete. How many, how many meals that, do you eat a week? Now, normally, like a normal person would eat how many meals a week? 21. All right, that's the math. All right, you get ready. Three meals a day, seven days a week, times three, one, 21. I can't do math there. Boom. 21 meals a week. Do you know what I see with 21 meals a week? A whole lot of opportunity. Guys, go to lunch with someone. Instead of sitting like in your own little desk and just eating like and hurrying up so that you can get onto something else, go and have lunch with someone. 
frequent the same places, the same restaurants, go there over and over again. Here's the thing, if you can't financially swing it, if it's not in the budget for you to go out to lunch even just one time a week, here we go, ready? Totally revolutionary. Invite somebody over to your house for a meal. That doesn't cost a whole lot, man. It just come over to my house. It might mean that you need to sweep things up. It might need to mean that you need to hide the kids in the closet, but just do it. <laughs> Guys, I want you to catch this. This is so neat to me about the Gospel of Luke. Every instance of Jesus making disciples in the Gospel of Luke involved Jesus at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. I, I don't make it up. I promise you. Go read Luke if you want to and find it. And that's because I believe Jesus understood the power of a meal. The power of being present was a catalyst for much bigger things. It wasn't just about the meal. I mean, like, although I'm like, Jesus, you're a smart man, I could totally get behind that method, all right? Eat, 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 all right? That's, that's what Jesus says in, in Luke. And here's the deal. You may feel inadequate, you may feel ill-prepared, but I promise you, you are right where God wants you to be. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, I will it's going to happen. I'm going to make you fishers of men. Guys, he does the making if we would just accept the assignment. He makes you effective if you would just take the first step. Ephesians 3.20, I want to end with this this morning. It says, now all glory to God who is able through his ministry power, there it is again, at work that's within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or we might think. Guys, we need to put aside small dreams. We need to put aside our worldly ambitions. We need to give Christ a blank check with our lives, and then we need to see where God leads. That's what we need to do. That's what it means to make disciples. That's what Matthew 28 is talking about. So it said, Jesus, I don't know what you're calling for here. I don't know what it looks like. It's really scaring my pants off. But I'm going to trust. Here's the thing. I'm not going to do this cheesy thing where I'm like, I give you the disciple challenge. But I kind of do give you the disciple challenge. What would happen today on February, what is it, 17th? If you could look back at February 17th in 2020 and you could say, guess what? I made at least one disciple. Oh, man, heaven would be cheering. Jesus would be smiling from ear to ear because of that. What would be ha happen if you just took the simple principles of what Jesus does in his ministry and you just lived them out in your life? That is, you, as we talked about in the very opening illustration, you would get out there and you would fight instead of just talking about it. Nothing in this sermon makes any difference. It makes no difference at all unless you go out there and you do something with it. Lord, my prayer this morning is that for all of us, at every step in our lives, we would go out there and we would fight. We're not fighting people, but Lord, we're fighting a battle for people's souls. And we would take that with all seriousness.